Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 6, and then obviously we'll be in Acts 7 as well. Every so often on Facebook, you'll see one of those silly exercises. Take the last thing you commented and the day of the week, and those two things will be the motto for your future company. These sorts of things are kind of, kind of foolish. We say, what's, what's the last thing I commented in an online forum? That can't be all that important. But what if something like this were true? What if the last thing that you said stuck with you? What if it was something that could potentially ruin you? Maybe financially, maybe in terms of reputation, or maybe even cost you your life. What would be the last thing that you would say? In the passage that we'll look at this morning, Stephen's last words are kind of the opposite of what we would expect, but they were chosen quite carefully. Let me read them for you again. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Why, Stephen? Why would you say that? Why would you say that thing at this point? It's like watching some scene that's horrific unfold in slow motion, and you can't do anything about it. You can see what's about to happen, and we see from the end of the chapter that was read a moment ago what happened to Stephen. Why would he say that? almost certainly knowing what the outcome was going to be. To understand why he answered this way, and to understand, I think, the whole passage, I think it's helpful for us to look at both the characters and the context of this story. So let's start out with, I think, the main character of this account, and that's certainly Stephen. We see him in chapter 6 and verse 8, doing wonders and signs, doing miracles among the people. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 10, He's speaking in the power of the Spirit and with God's wisdom. Chapter 6 and verse 12, he's arrested as the people are stirred up and he's dragged away before the council. And then in 6, uh, 13 and 14, he's accused. And then, as the high priest says, are these things so from uh, chapter 7 and verse 2 all the way down through verse 53, he answers these accusations by giving a sermon. And we'll look more at that in a moment. And then as we come to the close of the story, he sees heaven in chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. In chapter 7, verse 59, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then in verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he dies, described as falling asleep. Who are the other main characters? Certainly they're his opponents. They're Jews from northern Africa and from Asia. And then also along with the Sanhedrin, as the story develops, we start out with this group arguing against Stephen. It says the synagogue of the freedmen, some of them almost certainly were former slaves. That would be the understanding of why they would be called that. And then it says some from Cilicia and Asia, that would have been modern-day Turkey, various Roman provinces of that region. What do those men do? Well, in chapter 6, verse 11, and in verse 13... They essentially pay men to falsely accuse Stephen. And then in chapter 6 and verse 12, they bring him before the council. And then 
uh, along with the Sanhedrin, he is, and, or before the Sanhedrin, he's put on trial. And then we come down to uh, the end of the section, verses 57 through 59. They respond with rage to his message. They re refuse to listen. They rush out together, and they stone him. And just as an important note, because of who shows up in the next chapter, uh, Saul is obviously there holding the robes of those who are stoning Stephen. And we think, well, that's the first mention of Saul in Acts. But I would draw your attention to chapter 6 and verse 9. Some from Cilicia and Asia. Paul was from Cilicia. And so I think Paul was quite likely among those who were disputing with Stephen. And even though he didn't perhaps cast the stones with the men, he's certainly there participating and in uh, definite agreement with them. So I want you to notice next how the context, how these characters sort of provide bookends for the story. They mark off this section of Acts. Stephen does miracles at the beginning. Stephen dies at the end. Stephen is full of the Spirit. We see that in verse 8, verse 10, and certainly we saw it in uh, verse 5 that we looked at last week. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then when you come down to the end of chapter 7, you see this again, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit. And in contrast, what are his opponents like? It doesn't describe them as being full of the Spirit. Rather, it describes them as those who dispute. Verse 9 of chapter 6, they rose up and argued with him. They stirred up the people. And then uh, again, then they falsely accuse him. And then he come at the end, and the, the fruit of their false accusation is, we still are falsely accusing him as shown by the fact that we're stoning him for blasphemy. We see that again at the end of the chapter. And uh, they are disputing with him, not so much with words, but verse 54 of chapter 7, they are cut to the quick, begin gnashing their teeth at him, and you can just see their dispute, their disagreement with what he's saying. They block up their ears, they rush out against him, and they carry him out of the city and stone him. So there's these parallels between the beginning and the end of this particular account. I think it's also clear that Luke is drawing parallels between Stephen's martyrdom and the life, death, and ministry of Christ. Jesus does miracles, and then he's crucified. Jesus is falsely accused, and then he's murdered. Jesus forgives even as he is on the cross. Certainly, Stephen's death does not bear the same weight and significance as Jesus' death, and yet I think Luke is certainly highlighting the parallels for us, and that's something that we should note. But what about this big part in the middle, this, this sermon? Now you, the first time you read through it, you say, what is Stephen saying? A lot of it doesn't, doesn't really make sense to us as we glance through it. Um, I think that what is happening here is as you think of the different parts of the story, you have sort of the setting. We see that in chapter 6 and verse 8. You have the introduction of the conflict, chapter 6 and verse 9. You have this building tension as they arrest him. And then you have this tension in, in continuing to rise as Stephen gives this sermon, and it reaches its climax, its pinnacle, at verses 51 to 53 of chapter 7. This sermon is Stephen's response to the accusation that is asked in chapter 7 and verse 1, are these things true? What things? What is it that they're accusing Stephen of? Certainly we see from this passage that the Jews accuse Stephen. 
First of all, they accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and against God. We see this in verse 11. Then they accuse him of words against the temple and against the law. Verse 13, he incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. And then obviously under that is this idea, this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Why would they say that? Well, because Stephen was probably repeating the truth that Jesus himself said, this temple will be destroyed in three days. And some of them seem to still have the opinion that Jesus' words were about the physical temple as opposed to his earthly body, which is made clear in Luke's gospel. These are, interestingly enough, the same accusations that they made against Jesus. You blaspheme God, you attack the temple. How does Stephen answer? I think one other thing we should know before we look at Stephen's answer is think about what this passage is doing connected with the overall book of Acts. There's several main things that Luke is doing in Acts. One of them is this idea of the church being built as the Spirit uses men as witnesses of Christ, specifically his resurrection. We saw that back in, chapter, in Acts 1 and verse 8. So we see, I think, how this story develops that idea. Stephen is certainly a witness of Christ. And then another thing that I think Luke is doing throughout the book of Acts is showing who was right. And by that I mean not in terms of an argument, this person could be right, that person be, could be right, but rather there's false accusations being made against Christians that they're somehow in the wrong, they're inciting riots, all of these sorts of things. Consistently throughout the book of Acts here, and also when you get especially into the ministry of Paul, Luke shows over and over again who is the aggressor in these conflicts. It's not the people who are preaching Jesus, it's the Jews. The ones who are guilty are not the Christians, it's those who crucified Christ, and they consistently and over and over again try to silence those who preach the gospel because they don't want to be reminded of their guilt and they don't want to believe in the one that they crucified. Let's look now at this big section of chapter 7. Stephen answers the Jews. It starts out in, I believe, verse 2 where it talks about God calling Abraham with promises of blessing after suffering. So God leads Abraham, uh, starting in verse 2. He says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave, them, gave him the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. You say, Stephen, you're not really answering the question that was put to you. But in a sense, he is. He's setting up the background for his response about the accusations that are being made about against him. Are you blaspheming Moses and God? Are you against the temple and the law? And he's setting the stage here by saying, God's chosen people didn't start with Moses. So let's see where God's people started. It started with Abraham. When God led Abraham from Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia 
the region of the Tigris and the Euphrates, and led him over to Canaan. God promised that land and offspring would be Abraham's after they sojourned, after they were strangers like Abraham in a foreign land. Clearly we know that that's Egypt as we look at the book of Exodus and the end of Genesis. So God uh, promised to lead Abraham's offspring back to Canaan, verse 7. That's a, an interesting and an important point for us to note. God gives Abraham this covenant of circumcision. We say, what's the significance of that? That's going to tie in at the end when uh, Stephen accuses the Jews of being uncircumcised in heart. And so he's building that up for uh, bringing it out later. God gave Abraham descendants. And this is, uh, I'm sure, familiar to those of us who've looked at the Old Testament and, and maybe been in Sunday school. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Israel, right? But then he's, he, he has a little bit of a pause before he gets to Moses. And he says, all right, well, what happens between God calling Abraham and uh, God calling Moses? And so he talks about what happens with Joseph. Uh, chapter 7 and verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Again, he's sort of setting the stage for, for answering this question about Moses. What things does he highlight? Here's these brothers. They try to kill off their brother Joseph. They sell him into slavery. But God had a different purpose for Joseph, and we see this all throughout the book of Genesis. God rescues Joseph. God gives Joseph a position of authority. God uses Joseph, as it says in Genesis 50 and verse 20, you meant it for evil. God put me here so that I would save the lives of many people, including God's chosen people. Now, we come to Moses, chapter 7 and verse 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt, who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds." So we'll pause there for a moment. So God is now going to send Moses. And he talks about God's purpose in fulfilling his promise. Think back to what he had said to Abraham in chapter 7 and verse 6, that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I will judge, and they will come out and serve me in this place. So you see how Stephen is setting up all of these elements. How did uh, the nation of Israel come about? Descendants of Abraham. How do they get down to Egypt? In the time of Joseph. What's happening now? 
They're going to be mistreated by this Pharaoh who knows nothing about Joseph. Is God going to fulfill his promise? Yes. He's going to fulfill it in the person of Moses. God spares Moses, and not only does he spare Moses, he puts them in a position where he is the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He has a, a position of some prominence. And so we think, well, that must be the way that God's going to deliver the Israelites by Moses becoming uh, a, a prince of Egypt and becoming the ruler under Pharaoh. And that's how God's going to deliver his people. But that's not what happens. Look at the next few verses. Verse 23, But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And so, humanly speaking, we would expect that Moses would rise to a position of power and as a leader of Egypt would lead the people out. But instead, that's not what happened. He goes out. He sees Israelites being oppressed by one of their taskmasters, an Egyptian. He kills him, and the account in Exodus says he sort of buries him in the sand, and he thinks nobody sees what's being done, or no one will remember it or report him. And then the next day he sees two Israelites fighting. He says, don't do this. They say, hey, we saw you kill the Egyptian yesterday. We're not going to listen to you. Go somewhere else. And then Moses fears for his life that he's going to be seized by by Pharaoh, by one of these soldiers, and, and put to death himself. So he flees out to the wilderness. Has God's promise failed? No. Look at uh, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. It's interesting that you look at Moses' life, and we won't go into great deal detail on this. 40 years, he is connected with the Egyptians. He is... Um, enjoying prominence as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He has this act. He's out in the wilderness. Another 40 years he's in the wilderness before God calls him back to lead the people out of bondage. How does this take place? An angel appears to him in the flame of a burning thorn bush. Uh, clearly the angel of the Lord God is speaking to him. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord... I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. So you see this development. God made the promise to Abraham. All of these intervening uh, circumstances... Uh, brought about the fact that when Abraham heard that promise, he was in Canaan. So how did, why would they leave Canaan to have to come down to Egypt, to have to be rescued and brought back to Canaan? Because of the famine. How were they preserved from the famine? Because God had caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery and put him in a position of authority in Egypt. How is God going to deliver the people from Egypt? By taking a man who's 
living out in the wilderness as a wanderer, not unlike Abraham, to bring him back to lead the people out. And then God sends him back. Verse 35. Stephen starts by highlighting the fact this Moses whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? He's going to start picking up this theme of the Jews rejecting the authorities that God has put over them. He's the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers, and who received living oracles to pass on to you. What's that? That's the law that they accused him of rejecting, Stephen of rejecting. Verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rumpha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. What's the case that Stephen is making? I am not the one who's rejected God. As a nation, the people of Israel have rejected their God. Who has rejected the law? The people who broke the law. Who has blasphemed God? The people who said, make us a God to lead us up out of Egypt. Who has had no regard for the things that God wanted them to do? It is the people of Israel, and he's sort of developing this pattern. Well, what about the temple? He says, who's really opposed to the temple? Verse 43, you took along the tabernacle of Moloch. He said, Who's, whose temple did you worship at? A false god's temple. He develops that further, starting in verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found father in favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So God had the Israelites build the tabernacle, and they followed God's instructions. Solomon then builds the temple with David's resources. For whom? For the God of Jacob. He's connecting it back to the first part of the story. But what point does he make in verses 48 through 50? God made everything. He doesn't need your temple. And the temple is not important than the God for whom it was built. What's Stephen's application? And we come now to 51 to 53. You reject God. You've accused me 
of blaspheming God and Moses, you've accused me of speaking words against the temple and the law. Who is guilty of the things that you have accused me of? It is our fathers who have gone before us. It is you right now. In what ways? You resist the Spirit instead of fulfilling the law, just as your fathers do. Why do I say that? He says, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. We say, what does that have to do with anything? Go back to chapter 7 and verse 8. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. Without going into specifics, this was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Those who participated in it were supposed to be set apart to God, not just by some sort of outward physical manifestation, but also by the condition of their hearts. Over and over and over again, God's people Israel showed that they got some of the outside stuff, but a lot of them didn't get the inside stuff. Jesus accused the Pharisees of this. You tithe mint and cumin and all these spices that you have in your houses while you care nothing for those that the law said you should love and protect. You're focused on these intricate details and even exceeding the law and thereby going away from the law, but you're not even concerned about the spirit of the law, which is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he describes it in verse 51 as stiff-necked. You're stubborn. God says go this way. We said we want to go back to Egypt. You're uncircumcised in heart. God said obey this, and we said no, we're going to do this instead. You resist the Spirit instead of fulfilling the law. You are doing just as your fathers did. What about Moses? You persecute and kill the prophets. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. God sent you prophets. What did Moses say? Be easy to miss. He said, this is the one who said that uh, I will raise up another prophet like me. Uh, verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. What did the Israelites do when God sent them prophets? They killed them. Matthew 21, the vineyard owner sends servants, sends servants, sends servants, sends his own son. What do they do? Look here in verse 52. They announce the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So who was guilty of blasphemy against God? Who was guilty of rejecting God? The people that Stephen is standing in front of. Who broke the law? Verse 53, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. If you say, how did they not keep it? The prime example of it is, you killed the one for who... who the law pointed to. You killed the Messiah. He came to you and you killed him. Here's this temple. You say, look at this temple. This is an amazing temple. Who was the temple about? It was about Jesus Christ. And the God comes down to his temple and stands in it and you crucified the Messiah. Stephen says, who is blasphemed? God and Moses and disrespected the temple and the law. It's not me, it's you. You say, Stephen, why would you say that knowing the response that they're going to have? Because what else could he say? That is what was true. And what was God calling 
these early Christians to do, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And what was most important, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. So how could Stephen do anything different than to say what he said, even knowing what was going to happen next? This is the climax of this story. What was the choice for the Jews? What to some extent is our choice? Do I love the things about God or do I love God himself? They loved the rituals and the temple and the outward things. They didn't love God. Do I love a place where God is worshipped or the God that I'm supposed to worship? Do I turn from my sin of rejecting God, which they did specifically and clearly by crucifying Christ, but all of us do every time that we sin? Or do I choose, as the Jews did, to silence the voice that accuses me? Stephen gave the wrong answer if he wanted to live. He gave the only answer if he wanted to honor God. How do we know that what he said and did was right? Verse 56, God gives him a glimpse of heaven. Verse 59, he can say without any question, I commend my spirit to you. Take me to be with you. And in the face of total injustice, he says, forgive them, Lord. Specifically, because it highlights Saul, I think that that's part of how God answers Stephen's prayer at this moment. So what's the last thing that you would say? My great fear for any of us is that we would think that we're right with God. We would show up here and we would say everything's great because we love the church and in our mind the church is the building and that's the thing that we love. We come to this place and that's the most important thing to us. But the church is not a building, or to a certain extent, even the people sitting next to you, although the Bible does call us gathered as a church, the church is not about us, it's about Jesus, and we should not forget that. So do you know him? Sometimes we think we follow God by behaving religiously, and yet from the example of the Jews, we can recognize that we can be like the most religious by human standards, Totally devout by human standards, totally damned by God's standards. Who had the Spirit in this passage? Who had God's condemnation? Not the ones that you would expect when you first start to look at it. What about you? God keeps his promises all throughout this passage to give Abraham a son, to bring Abraham's descendants to the land, to bless all nations in Jesus Christ. We see elements of all this in Stephen's sermon. God said he would give mercy to all who call on Jesus as he has promised. He also said whoever rejects my son has no life. So if God kept his promises there, do you think God's going to keep his promises now? So what should our response be? If you know him... Rejoice, but make sure that you love God and not a place or a thing associated with God. Make sure that you love God and not religiousness. If you don't know him, what's the only right response? To repent, to turn away from and acknowledge the sin that you have done, like the Jews needed to acknowledge, we've crucified the Messiah. That was wrong. We are guilty. God have mercy on us. We believe in him now. They didn't do that, most of them. But that's the same question we have to ask. 
What happens if we don't? If we don't, it is quite likely, as it says in verse 42, God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. Let's say that you say, I really want this thing more than God. And God says, okay. What could be worse than that? To get the thing that you really want, and the thing that you really want is not God, and God says, go serve that thing. One final question for believers. If you ever stand in the place that Stephen stood, falsely accused of some sort of crime because you follow Jesus, and your life or something else you hold dear will be lost if you hold true to what you know about God and you know about following Him, what will your last words be? Let's pray. Lord, we look at a passage like this and at first it just seems like a history lesson. And the closer we look at it, the more we realize that Stephen's not ignoring the question that the Jews put to him. He's answering it, but he's answering it in a way that calls them to repentance. Lord, I pray that all of us would be in a right standing before you, that if any of us does not know where we stand before you, that we would deal with that before we leave this room, not necessarily by walking down an aisle or, or doing some sort of outward sign, but in our hearts confessing our sin to you, turning away from our sin and saying, God, Forgive me, have mercy on me, help me to follow you. I believe in Jesus as the only way. Lord, if we've done that, if we are believing in you, then help us wrestle with these questions that Stephen wrestled with, which was, do we love you or things about you? Because then that might point to the fact that our profession is false. Or at least that we have a lot of things that we need to get clear in our minds and hearts and confess before you. And even in Stephen's own example, are you important enough to us that we will speak the truth about you, knowing what is going to happen next, but realizing that it's the only right thing that we can do in your sight? Most of us are probably not going to stand exactly where Stephen stood, but we do stand around other people on a daily basis, and when the what happens next is even smaller than what Stephen faced. Sometimes we're still not willing to speak about you. Lord, help us to have wisdom and grace to be bold, to be kind, to be loving, but to be bold and to be clear and to say what you have said. We pray that you might bless uh, the rest of this day, that we would think about these things throughout the week and that we would honor you in them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.